What transformative insight can we learn from a Zen master and a legendary samurai that we can apply to everything we do today to literally turn ourselves into fucking millionaire sex gods? <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about the unfettered mind as well as the uh, letters of Yagyu Munenori. Who was a legendary samurai warrior, and the unfettered mind is like a series of letters to him by the Zen master Takuan Soho. So this is again from the Kyoto Renaissance. Um, last week we talked about Musashi, and this is kind of a follow-on from that. Basically, this week we're trying a bit of a different format. Um, instead of both reading the same book, we both read two different and related books. So I read the Book of Family Traditions on the Art of War. Which is Yagyu Munenori's sort of manifesto on, you know, um, the way of martial arts and how to, you know, attain mastery in it, similar to, in a similar vein to Miyamoto Musashi's Book of Five Rings, but again, like you said, coming from a very different angle, right? If I understand it correctly, like you said, Unfettered Mind, Takuan Soho is like, was a Zen master and not a martial artist yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of a, a, a teacher and a counsel to Yagi Munenori, and he wrote a series of letters to him to teach him. And actually, if I understand it correctly, um, the unfettered mind is what inspired both Musashi and Munenori to write their own books um, originally. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the lineage here that, that we're working with. Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost like percentages of meditative insight and swordsmanship in each of these. I think, like, I'm reading into it a little bit, but partially why I think this inspired them is, like, this united uh, a common aspect of living, you know, and a very, like, emotionally salient relevant aspect of living in combat with this meditative insight, keen meditative insight. But some of the actual uh, fighting advice in this book is obviously not good because the guy's a priest. He's a Zen monk. So for Musashi, I can see how he's like, okay, let me specifically be like, how do you chop people (laughs) while still trying to retain and build on that meditative insight? Yeah. So changing the slant and kind of like setting the record straight maybe even a little bit. Yeah. 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 And I would almost put like Musashi on one end of the spectrum where he's just like, pretty laser focused on swordsmanship and martial arts and chopping people up um and then you know correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't read Unfettered Mind but you know Takuan Soho on one side really focused on Zen and and Buddhism and and the ways of that and Munenori kind of in the middle where he talks about both Zen and swordsmanship directly in the book like he directly talks about you know here's how you take um you know, here's a couple of different stances and stuff, but it doesn't go as far as Musashi in, like, explicit instructions on sword fighting. Yeah. And he also, unlike Musashi, talks about Zen very directly. Like, he's like, you know, these are the, some parallels between Zen and martial arts. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, he has a couple of, like, um, koans and, and other stuff oh, that that's cool. are from, you know, the Buddhist philosophies. Yeah. Uh in a more direct way than uh, Musashi, I felt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Takuan's book, he he, is talking to the audience of Master Swordsman. Mm-hmm. So he uses metaphors of swordsmanship in order to convey a point or a series of points about the nature of mind. Okay. Um, and about how deepening your understanding of self and non-self, of the qualities of mind, of grasping and aversion, uh, can make you a better fighter. But also kind of like doing some judo on that and being like how it's beyond that even, right? It's not about being a better fighter or a worse fighter. It's about grasping your essential nature and finding a a liberation beyond um, the vagaries of like your glory-seeking life as a swordsman. Right. Right. So what did you think overall of the book, The Unfettered Mind? I liked it. Um, I liked it. I would say, as far as like the, the Zen tradition, 
Um, Zen is kind of notorious for hiding the ball. Namely, when they talk about meditation, they're kind of like, they use a lot of insinuation. They use a lot of like um, dense metaphor. They're not very clear about like, hey, this is what we're trying to do here. This is what we're not trying to do. Um, so it's a lot of like, just question marks and a lot of like sitting on the cushion for years at a time to like understand the nature of mind. Mm-hmm. Taquan's a little more direct about stuff, you know, so he has uh, various places where he quite clearly is like, hey, here's here's what you should do. You know, he's like, um, to think I will not think, this is also in your thoughts. Simply do not think about not thinking at all. You know, so mm-hmm. like, um, relatively direct instructions compared to what you, you might hear in the typical Zen tradition. Or this one I thought was helpful, which is like, the right mind is a mind that does not remain in one place. It's the mind that stretches throughout the entire body and self. A confused mind is the mind that thinking something over congeals in one place and therefore falls into like this one-sidedness. So it's like, you know, you're looking at a tree and you're staring at like one of the leaves, but you miss the tree for the leaves, right? Right. Um, so so he, he's, he's a lot more like straightforward than, uh, than many many Zen texts, I would say. What did, what did you think overall of uh, Muninari, especially in the context of going to Kojin An this morning to like meditate and kind of like do some of the things that he would have done hundreds of years ago, like in almost an unchanged way? Um, so I think I like Muninari's book. I found it to be personally a little more relatable than the Book of Five Rings because yeah. again, like it is a little more about like you know here are the principles and the ideals the way that you live your life in order to be a successful martial artist or a master and i feel like you can kind of apply that to different things a little more broadly um whereas you know musashi's book was again very much like here's how you kill people with swords very like explicitly um you know so so i like that aspect of it um, I mean, in terms of the context of Kojinan, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have too much to say, you know, specifically about that in, in comparison to this book. I would say more than the particular, like, rituals of any single Zen temple, I think, like, the ideals that he talks about... Um, really made sense to me and I could kind of grasp them from my own personal, you know, non-religious meditation practice that I've had on and off for the last few years. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, an example is, um, so the free mind, this is actually kind of related to what you were just saying. So, So, quote, when you let the mind go, it stops where it has gone. Therefore, the first level of practice is to get it to come back each time so that the mind does not stay anywhere. When you strike a blow of the sword and your mind lingers where you struck, this teaching has you get it to return to you. At the advanced level, the message is to let your mind be free to go wherever it will. You release your mind after having made it such that it will not stop and linger anywhere, even if it is set free. To embody the free-minded mind, means that as long as you use the mind that releases the mind to rope the mind and keep dragging it back, you are not free and independent. The mind that does not stop and linger anywhere, even when it is set free, is called the free-minded mind. So, again, it's this idea that, like, you know, lingering and getting stuck on particular thoughts or particular things um, is not the way. Right. But if you are truly and you want to achieve, you know, you want to embody the free minded mind, but there's levels to that. Right. Like the first thing to do is to get yourself to a point where you can bring your mind back when it wanders. Right. Yeah. Um, And, you know, he talks about that. But then the second thing is, you know, you don't even have to make that effort of bringing it back because like. Uh, you were saying from Soho's thing, um, if 
you are engaged in the act of trying to pull your mind back, then you're thinking about that and your mind's not truly free, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like this idea of in meditation where like you're actually not doing anything. Like that's the yeah. point, right? Just sitting means just sitting. Like, right. And nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting. He had some similar lines of thinking here where he's like, you know, as a beginner, you know, you want to sharpen up your awareness and learn to return, you know, focus on the breath, things like that. Um, as you practice more and more, you don't want to like chain up your mind. Um, you know, like if you if you if you tie it up, it's like you're ultimately not free. It can't function the way it should. And also, what he says is like, we should be like the lotus, which is unstained by the mud from which it rises. You know, you want your mind to be like a well-polished crystal that remains unstained even if it's put in the mud. Um, you, you can let it go where it wishes. And this actually uh, has affected my practice this week, I would say, in meditation. Like, I think sometimes I can get over-concentrated when I meditate. You know, like mm-hmm. over-focused on just like returning or over-focused on the breath. Instead, I've taken more of like an open awareness type um approach this week more so and I feel the difference um, and I felt the difference today um, for sure so I think that that's a valuable thing I think the challenge there is if you're a beginner and you read that you know like one of my friends was like learning to meditate and he was like he interpreted this to mean like if he's in a cycle of like vicious self attack he just has to keep like attacking himself <laughs> but that's not what that means so what that means is like if you practice enough to where you know, your mind is, uh, has become more spacious, more buoyant, where like a balloon, if you push it into the water, it pops back up. If you bump it up from the water, it falls back down. Then you can trust it to go where it will with the knowledge that it's always going to come back to a place of equanimity more likely, or worst case, you can pull it back. But if you can't pull it back and you're in a horrible cycle of self-attack, that's not what that means is just keep attacking yourself. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not. Well, because if you keep attacking yourself, then you've let the mind linger, right? Yeah, you know, your mind's congealed. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one thing... Let me find it. Um, there's an interesting contrast. I just had this page, and then I lost it. Um, well, I was flipping here. But basically, there's an interesting c- contrast between... Musashi and Munenori. So Munenori kind of talks about... Um, he talks about sickness quite a bit in this book. Um, and he basically says, like, sickness of the mind is when you um, are fixated obsessively on anything, any one thing. Um, but what I thought really contrasted Musashi that was interesting is he said, it is sickness to be obsessed with winning. It is sick- sickness to be obsessed with using martial arts. And it is sickness to be obsessed with putting forth all one has learned. And, and then he goes on, you know, sickness to be obsessed with offense, defense. So what's interesting is that the second half of this, everything except for the first sentence, right? Sickness to be obsessed with using martial arts. Sickness to be obsessed with uh, putting forth all one has learned. You know, obsessed with offense, obsessed with defense. That lines up very closely to what Musashi was talking about, right? And this way of being like formless and flowing with the battle and taking what you can get and not being too attached to any one way of doing things. Yeah. But the one constant for Musashi was to be obsessed with winning. Like, when you walk in there... The only thing on Musashi's mind is winning at any cost. Yeah. Whereas to Munanori, even that is sickness. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. that's where Munanori strays a little closer towards the Zen ideals than Musashi. I think you're absolutely right. I also think it's interesting because like Musashi is almost using meditation in the way that it's typically advocated um, in modernity which is more like a, a stress ball, you know, where it's like, it's, it's meditation in service of something else, right? Like, like you're saying, he does like, he, 
uses meditative insight. He uses um, the understanding of like formlessness of like, you know, uh, acute, keen, minute observation of his enemy to win, but he doesn't necessarily use it to promote deep self insight in the way that Munenori does. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, and I think that's similar for folks who are like, you know, me- meditating um, primarily to feel better, reduce anxiety, things of that nature. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem exactly the same on the surface, but I think there's a similarity in that it's not meditation for the purpose of seeing the mind's true nature, meditation as like the Hubble Space Telescope as opposed to as a stress ball or something like that. Yeah. 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 Not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, for me, definitely, I would say my practice has lead more towards like the, the Musashi style, if you will, or like meditation in the service of, you know, being more focused being more, you know, less distracted in my day-to-day life and things like that. Um, You know, I think, like, the longer I go, the more I tend to stray towards the other side. But I will say, like, you know, I I haven't done a ton of meditating. I've probably done, like, 30 hours of meditating in my life, you know, which is not, like, massive. It's not nothing, but it's not massive, you know? Yeah, it's pretty good, but, yeah. Um... So, for me still, it's about, like, to a certain extent, just being, like, more focused, more in, just aware, I guess. Like, that's what it's ultimately about, right? It's yeah. just being more aware. Um, right, and that, that awareness brings a lot of these benefits. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. Well, and, and on that front, like, you know, some of the videos I'm going to make to accompany this are on the the evidence we see for the benefits of meditation and about the brain science of meditation. So like, as far as performance, you do see people reducing things as far apart as like their running times, definitely their psychological well-being, reductions in anxiety, depression, um, improvements in marksmanship among Olympic marksmen, uh, a lot of different, uh, different improvements you see from pursuing meditation, as well as reductions in, um, your amygdala, the size of your amygdala, the part of your brain that generates fear responses, mm-hmm. fight or flight responses, um, and, and a host of other effects. So those benefits definitely are there. Um, but I think it's this like chicken egg thing. I think in Zen, the reason they hide the ball is because if you are seeking those benefits, the seeking you know, can obscure your ability to cultivate the open awareness you need to get those benefits. I don't think it necessarily has to because other traditions don't necessarily see it the same way. And that's one of the biggest critiques of Zen is like that aspect of hiding the ball. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this idea, you know, of not like thinking about the thing that you're doing essentially like in in your case with Takuan you're talking about not thinking about um the uh not thinking about trying to not think about things right because yeah. that is thinking about something right um Munenori kind of comes back to this like again and again and again and he talks about you know the normal mind right yeah. so the normal mind, the quote here that the, that he phrased is, um, a monk asked an ancient worthy, what is the way? He replied, the normal mind is the way. Um, and Munanori talks about how this principle applies to all of the arts. Um, and, and basically, you know, the, the way he puts this is, um, you know, suppose you're shooting with a bow and you think you were shooting while you were shooting. Then the aim of your bow will be inconsistent and unsteady. When you wield a sword, if you are unconscious of wielding a sword, your offense will be unstable. When you are writing, if you are conscious of writing, your pen will be unsteady. Even when you play the harp, if you are conscious of playing, the tune will be off. Um, And then he talks about how, you know, 
it is when you have nothing in your chest that you are on the way, right? So um, I think this is an interesting idea and I it, it struck me as very true and not something that I, you know, had, had thought about a lot. Like, you know, I'll give you a simple example, right? When you are driving a car, right? If you're thinking about like, you know, I'm turning the wheel, you know, I'm putting the blinkers on and my foot's on the gas pedal, my foot's on the brake, I'm shifting. You're probably going to drive like shit. Yeah. Right? 100%. Yeah. Um, but once you get to the point where like it's muscle memory, right? And you just focus, you're just kind of observing what's going on around you and just doing what you're doing. That's when you can actually do something really effectively. Right. And you're yeah. not. Um, you're, you're not letting your mind get in the way of your action. You're just like doing it. Right, right. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I also think it's related to the emotionality. So there's, there's two different things. Like one is you're tripping over yourself because you're caught up in an over conceptual overlay that you've placed on the situation. Like you're driving, but you're thinking about driving. The thinking about driving is out of sync with the reality of it. And therefore you're tripping over it and unable to engage with the real thing that is non-conceptual and right in front of you and has to be accessed directly through your awareness and cannot be accessed any other way. Um, and there's also the emotional side of things, which is like if you're in a competition, let's say you're in a battle and you're thinking about gain or loss, um, you are not thinking about your movements in the moment you're getting emotionally caught up and again you're caught up in this conceptual realm but you're also being distracted by your emotions um so there's cognition and emotion that trip you up when you're like too obsessed with the map and not in the territory of whatever you're doing yeah yeah Yeah, definitely that's interesting um so a random parallel that comes to mind related to that first thing you were talking about, basically like how you're making a, essentially a model of driving, you know, and you're not actually driving at that time. Um, it kind of reminds me of, of like software in a way, right? Because what you're doing in software is you're creating like essentially a mapping from the real world into, um, you know, logic or or computer instructions that creates a model of the world Mm -hmm. and then you're trying to operate on that model right um and so you know i wonder like with things like ai or self-driving cars right this idea of like you know we're just constructing a model right and then we're we're operating that we're presenting questions to that model and asking it to make decisions based on how it's modeled the world around it will we will that line of work ever get us to like you know full l5 self-driving or whatever i forget the levels but they're like these different levels right um will it ever get us to like fully self-driving cars or is there something else something essential there that's truly necessary that cannot be just simply reduced to machine instructions well there's yeah there's like there's Two questions there in my mind. One, which is, do you need awareness to reach the highest level of self-driving? That's one question. The other question is, can computers be aware in the way that we are? Um, I think that it's kind of like Searle's Chinese box, right? Where it's like there's um, there's this box and you feed Chinese characters into it. There's a guy on the other side who takes those Chinese characters matches them using a dictionary with English characters and hands them back. Does the guy in the box know Chinese? You know? It's like computers, as, as they currently are, kind of operate like that. Where they don't, they don't have awareness in that way. They don't, they don't know um, what they're doing. So as far as like true artificial intelligence, um, just weaving webs of logic doesn't necessarily yield awareness. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, but we might have logic sufficiently complex as to handle all of the edge cases and complexity of driving. Right. Yeah. Right. So, okay, here's another interesting question. If we have a sufficiently complex machine, um, you know, do we have the capability to 
define and identify awareness? There are some good books on this. We could read them and honestly talk about them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. this is a very interesting area. I'm definitely curious about it. Um, and I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely just like... Because like, you know, we have like... <laughs> we have like the Turing test, right? Yeah. But that's purely observational and it's been passed. Like, yeah. Tons of times. Yeah. I mean like, right. you know, GPT-3 could basically pass the Turing test. Almost. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. The Turing test, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically like... Um, you know, to summarize, can this AI pass off as a human in conversation, like a text conversation with yeah. another human? Yeah, so it's like, you know, typically the format is like you're talking to a chatbot. You don't know if they're human or robot. You ask them a series of unstructured questions, like whatever you want to ask. And based on their answers, can you tell if they're human or robot? Right. Um, so it's it's a pretty low bar in that sense. And like the thing about AI is, like every time computers take over, you know, a task that we believe only humans can do, we we push the bar back, and we're like, no, true AI is over there, you know. Like once computers learn how to play chess, we're like, no, true AI is like playing Go. Once computers learn that, we're like, true AI is learning to play the violin. And frankly, I think computers may already be able to generate some pretty good melodies. Um, so we just keep pushing it further and further back until. I would say maybe what's left is the kernel of, of uh, awareness. Right. 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 Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we should look at some books on that in the in the future. Yeah, there, there's a pretty short one. It's somewhat dry. Um, by a guy called Edelman. I can, like, look that up. Um, in the meantime, okay. So I'm going to bring it back to... Um, Back to uh, 17th, 18th century Japan. So, um, this was an interesting little uh, side anecdote that I liked. So, again, this is related to, like, you shouldn't be trying too hard to act a certain way or to do a certain thing when you're in battle. So, basically, he's talking about, like, trying not to blink when people like, you know, like wave their hand in your face or something like that. And he says here, you know, to deliberately hold back spontaneous blinking indicates a much more disturbed mind than just <laughs> blinking. Right? The oh immovable or imperturbable mind is normal. If something comes at your eyes, you blink. This is the state of not being upset. The essential point is just not losing the normal state of mind. To try not to move is to have moved. To move is an immovable principle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's... It's almost like these two are, like, writing letters to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy's, like, learning some stuff from, from Takuan. <laughs> yeah, he, said, he says something similar right here where he's like, um, Although wisdom is called immovable... This does not signify any insentient thing like wood or stone or computers. Um, maybe. Uh, it moves as the mind is wont to move forward or back to the left or to the right. Um, and the mind that does not stop is called immovable wisdom. Yeah, which is why I've been trying to be a little less like over-concentrated in my meditation practice. Um, and I've been trying to apply that to, uh, to jujitsu and in other contexts too. And I think it's been really helpful. I think it's been really helpful. I've had to like coax myself into being like, hey, you know, it's okay to think. You don't have to focus on your breathing. <laughs> um, but I think I'm starting to like soften up my practice enough to like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, I think you need a balance. And I think like depending on where your mind is at, like you'll swing between one or the other. Like today you know i could have really used a little more focus and hard line like you know focusing on the breathing because for a lot of my sit today i was just like my mind was just randomly wandering um you know i was thinking about like these books i was like hmm i wonder if we should go down you know continue talking about uh uh this this trend of like eastern philosophy like i've heard some good things about tao te ching maybe we should read that yeah yeah um but you know, I what I wanted to do was to let those thoughts go and you know come back to the breath, but I was I was struggling with that a little bit. 
But like I told you, this morning was also tough because I was very under caffeinated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was underslept this morning. Yeah. So that was a little challenging for me as well. But I think, um, yeah, I think the Tao Te Ching or other like um, Taoist texts would be interesting because Zen is basically like, you know, Indian Buddhism plus Taoism uh, plus, you know, Japanese folk traditions plus its own set of stories and traditions. Right. Um, and so I think um, there, there's, it's interesting to go to that source as well. Yeah. Or like the Chuangzi, like the Chuangzi has like this concept of like the butterfly dream where he's like, you know, Chuangzi dreamt that he was a butterfly and then he woke up. It's like, was he, was it, was the butterfly dreaming that he was Chuangzi or is Chuangzi dreaming that he's a butterfly? You know? That's like some Franz Kafka shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like that book. Um, I like, I like that book. It's, it's shorter than the Tao Te Ching. That's good. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, let's see here. So, yeah. Again, I'm I'm flipping through, and he keeps coming back to this idea of. You know, not thinking about things too much, not getting fixated on stuff, letting the mind flow. Um, and okay, another thing he talks about is kind of like this, like instantaneous removal, like you know, like snapping to kind of right. Yeah. Like one thing he says is, um, where is it here? The mind is like the moon in water. The body is like an image in a mirror. So what he means is that um, if we if we go forward uh, a little bit, it says you know the reflection of the moon in the water is an instantaneous phenomenon. Even though it's way out in space, the moon casts its reflection in water the very instant the clouds disappear. The reflection does not descend gradually from the sky. It is cast at once, before you can even blink an eye. This is a simile for the way things reflect in people's minds as immediately as the moon reflects in a body of water. That's a really good explanation of that. Because I've heard that uh, that like metaphor before. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've heard it that well explained before. Yeah. Yeah, that it's just like this instant revealing, you know, this reflection of, of what's, you know, around you. Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, what are you about to say something? No. Okay, what's interesting about that is this, um, this story of like Wei Nung and Shen Shu. So there's this, there's this idea in, in Buddhism, there's, there's two ideas in Buddhism that kind of like somewhat conflict or are two ways of looking at the mind one is like you know the mind is a jeweled mirror uh work tirelessly to keep it clean and the other is there's no there's no stand for the mirror there's no mirror at all there's nowhere for dust to even settle you know Mm -hmm. so it's this concept of like is the mind something we need to work to keep clean or is ordinary mind the way is there nothing to even keep clean in the first place you know, we don't have to brush this thing free of uh, conceptual, you know, detritus because it's like, in its nature, it's inherently free, and we just have to return to that essential freedom, that is its fundamental quality. Interesting. Yeah. So what's interesting about that too is in this book, um, I don't think I like bookmarked it, so I probably can't find the quote, but at one point, um, Munonori does talk about this idea of you know, polishing your mind like a jewel. And he talks about how a well-polished jewel will not collect dust. Yeah. Even if you drop it, even if you, you know, throw it in a pile of dirt. Yeah. But if it's improperly polished, then, you know, if there's imperfections and stuff on it, then it will catch dust. So you got to, you know, this ideal of, of, of polishing. I think he at least believes it somewhat. Yeah. But he believes in doing it to the point where 
you stop polishing and you just are. Yeah. Um, although he does say in this book as well, like very openly, like I have not mastered Zen. You know, yeah. he, he says like, this is what it would be like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and I'm trying to get there and I apply these concepts to my martial arts, but I'm no Zen master, you know, and I think he's pretty humble about that in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Another metaphor I've heard along similar lines is something like, you know, someone asked like a Zen master, like, you know, why do we meditate if like the mind is inherently free and, you know, um, whatever, like flawlessly perfect, you might say. Uh, and he's like, well, you know, why do we use a fan, right? The wind is all pervasive. You use a fan to feel the wind, not to like create the wind. Hmm. So it's like, you know, you, you practice maybe, or you, you, polish the jewel to be able to see or appreciate its finer qualities not to create them you know yeah yeah that's interesting and I, I think this is when we're talking about like this polishing the mind we're not talking about like learning stuff we're not talking about like cultivating your skill set or building knowledge what we're talking about is awareness you know the core awareness you're born with the beginner's mind the mind that exists before knowledge that's the thing which has this fundamental quality of like freedom um you know yeah that um doesn't necessarily you know that can necessarily be improved but has to be revealed perhaps or experienced in practice yeah yeah Yeah, most definitely um so this isn't like a like a Rousseauian like noble savage type idea of like you know um, you're just good and you know society has like corrupted you and knowledge is bad you know or maybe I'm just like maybe I'm just giving Rousseau like a, a raw deal but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know yeah okay so here's a here's a poem in this book that I actually liked quite a, quite a bit it's about the true and the false mind so what we'll do is I'll read the poem I'll get your take on it, and then I can tell you kind of Munanori's explanation of the poem. After okay, that. okay. I'm so, curious. Yeah. it is the mind that is the mind confusing the mind. Do not leave the mind, O oh mind, to the mind. Hmm. So I think if you could see the, the structure of the verse, it helps a little bit. So I'll pass this over to you. Um, and you can take a look and, and pontificate a little bit, but no cheating in reading like the description. Okay. So again, it is the mind that is the mind that confuses the mind. Yeah. Yeah, again, how I read this is like there is a conceptual layer of thought, cognition and emotion that occupies, confuses, bedevils, and traps you um, in a way that's out of sync with the non-conceptual reality that confronts you and you need to bring your awareness the light of awareness to that conceptual layer to soften it free it um, make it more capacious and provide space to engage with the non-conceptual reality that underlies it yeah, no, I think I think that, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You can tell you've been doing a lot of meditating. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly, right? It, it's like this, this, he calls it the false mind, but it's it's this layer of um, cognition. And then there there is the original mind, right? Which is, like you said, the, the beginner's mind, right? The, the, the wisdom that's there before knowledge. Um he also talks about how they're not two distinct entities the original mind is the original countenance which is there before our parents give birth to us having no form has no origination and no extinction um and then he talks about um how zen is understood to be a teaching that communicates this mind the this this mind meaning the original mind yeah um there's also imitations then. A lot of people say similar things that are not really the right path, 
So people who are supposedly Zenists are not all the same. It's also the first time I've heard the term Zenists. Have you heard that one before? Um, I think I read that in Alan Watts' book. Hmm. But I don't think it's a term you hear very often. Now it's more like... Well, I think Zenist maybe is like... Almost like a derogatory term. So I was going to say now you hear like the term Zen practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, or like casualty of the Dharma. Maybe that's a Zenist. <laughs> <laughs> like someone who just ruins their life because they misread Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also talks about, yeah, like you said, this idea of, of emotion and that being the false mind as well. Like he, he phrased it a little bit differently, but he says, when we speak of the false mind, this refers to the energy of the blood which is personal and subjective. Blood energy is the action of the blood. When blood rises, the color of the face changes and one becomes angry. Also, when people despise what we love, we become angry and resentful. But if others similarly despise what we despise, we enjoy this and twist wrong into right. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Yeah. And, and he basically says, you know, these are all states of minds that come from the energy and the blood in the body, from this physical body, when dealing with temporal situations. These states of mind are referred to as the false mind. Yeah, I mean, and with this, I always think of, like, the line between external and internal, right? Like, <clears throat> if I feel, like, a cold breeze on my face, okay, that's outside of myself. I consider that outside of myself, right? But if I feel a pressure in my chest and my, like, heartbeat speeding up i'm like oh this is how i feel I, when the wind blows on my face i'm not like this is how i feel in some deep fundamental way like hey because i feel this sensation it means something about me or it means something directional or deep or meaningful about who i am and what i believe da, 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 da. but these are both just biological sensations right like right so it, that's one of the things with zen is playing with this boundary of what is interior and what is exterior, right? If there's some words in my head, that's my thought. If there's some words on a page here or you say some words, those aren't mine. Why? They're just, they're both words I'm observing. Yeah. Right? So. Right. And once you read the words on the paper, aren't they just a thought, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you I think part of the practice of like this, this idea of investigating the character of self is, is really minutely investigating where is this line between inside and outside and does it exist and in what sense does it exist and I think that's that's what um, some of the practice at least comes down to right and I think that ties into the martial arts and competition in the sense that if it's you versus an opponent it's a very like emotionally charged kind of situation it's like i have to win i have all these emotions i become fixated i get overexcited right but if your sense of inside and outside self and other shifts it becomes very much like a, a dance of forms a problem that you're solving in a much more uh equanimous and dispassionate way right and maybe you just like take apart the problem as opposed to get over invested and out of sync and then get ultimately like defeated in this case kill right 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 but with that like athletes are very different like different athletes like some athletes have that cold dispassion right and take take a problem solving approach um like a Fedor Emilianko you know or like I don't know who like a really Who's like a really like ice cold like basketball player? Kobe. Kobe. There you go, Kobe. Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Then you have other people who play from a place that's much like more hot, you know, where they're like have more emotion, you know. Yeah, yeah. They kind of wear, yeah, wear their emotion on their sleeve. Yeah. Or yeah. okay, in modern basketball, another player that's kind of just like ice cold is Kevin Durant. Like yeah. he never seems like he's, you know freaked out he's like hyped up he's yeah. just like always cool calm and collected and just like tearing people up yeah um whereas you know someone like i mean say like lebron james is much more like um 
outwardly emotional with the game, you know, like or or you know, like Giannis. I was talking about Giannis last week. Yeah, he's yeah. another person who you know shows much more of his emotions. But yeah, yeah, KD is just ice cold, and that's where I think the the Zen practice kind of diverges from, um, like elite performances. You can be an elite performer, and not gain some of this fundamental insight or embody it necessarily. You don't have to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. It's very interesting. I'm trying to think of, like, other examples. Um, I think, like, Israel Adesanya lately has been very, like, ice cold in his fights. Very, like... Yeah. Um... You know, I, I read something that he's been working a lot on his breathing and stuff like that and trying to stay just, like, cool and calm and collected. Yeah. Um, but you take someone like, oh, I don't know, Jan Blachowicz. You know, he's not cool, calm, and collected. He's coming to hit you with, like, his fist. It's like a hammer. Yeah. You know? He's just <laughs> trying to smash you. Yeah. Um, both, like, two of the best fighters in the UFC uh, today. What I find interesting about that is sometimes that, like, you know, aggressive emotional um, approach, like, wins the fight, not necessarily because you are emotional, but because you um, unseat the steadiness of your opponent. Like Mike Tyson, right? Like, people would lose fights with Mike Tyson before they got in the ring. Yeah. Because his reputation and his demeanor was such that it was just, like, you know, a terrifying prospect and you just, like, lost your composure, you know? Right. Um, Although, you know, this is interesting. There's something that um, that he talks about Munanori in this book a little bit is like, not that you always have to be outwardly calm. He definitely has a slant towards saying you should be outwardly calm and inwardly aggressive. So he says, um, he has some, um, some analogies here. Um... So, hearing the sound of wind and water, wind and water, um, so, wind has no sound, it produces sound when it hits things, um, thus wind is silent when it blows up above, when it makes contact with things like trees and bamboo below, the sound it produces is noisy and frantic. Water also has no sound when it is falling from above. It makes a frantic sound down below when it comes down and hits things. Using these images as illustrations, the point is to be calm and quiet above while sustaining an aggressive mood underneath. These are images of being extremely serene, unruffled, and calm on the surface while inwardly being aggressively watchful. Um, and he, he doesn't talk about it right here, but, you know, basically... The aggressive and passive modes should be paired, one inward and one outward. It is bad to settle into just one mode. Um, it's imperative to reflect on the sense of yin and yang alternating. Movement is yang, stillness is yin. Yin and yang interchange inside and outside. When yang moves inwardly, outwardly be still in the yin mode. When you are inwardly yin, movement appears outward. So basically alternating between this idea of like, you know, stillness and aggressiveness of the mind and stillness of the mind and aggressiveness of the body. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I feel like I feel like good martial artists definitely embody that where, you know, if they're moving in the moment of suddenness when they're like, you know, throwing a punch, kick, you know, shooting for a takedown, they're not thinking. But if they're like, you know, clinched or taking a step back and they're moving slow, they probably are assessing you know, and uh, surveying the situation, you know, thinking a few steps ahead, trying to either implicitly or explicitly decide on a course of action. Probably implicitly, probably no thought, no mind. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the ones that are at the top of their field, right? Yeah. 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 Because if you're thinking, right, if you're like, okay, I'm going to throw this punch, then I'm going to faint, I'm going to throw another kick, I'm going to try to do a takedown, while you're you know, trying to think these three steps ahead, your opponent's just going to punch you in the face. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're just going to get your ass knocked out, you know? Yeah, it's got to it's gotta be much more implicit than that. 
I think that's why you have to train so much to be successful, right? It's because, again, it's like the ordinary mind is the way. Like, you just have to be a fighter, right? Like, if you're going to be a fighter or or whatever your, you know, chosen profession is. Profession is. Yeah. Um, It's interesting, though. Like, I, I was, as I was reading this book, I was trying to apply it to my work, right? And so I'm a software engineer. I, I write code. I do various other software engineering related tasks. And I was trying to think about like, you know, one, is this where I'm at? Two, do I think that that's where I get to? And it's interesting. Like, I think sometimes it is, right? Like, sometimes I'm like, okay, here's how I need to solve this problem. And then I'm just doing it. You know, I'm not thinking about like, okay... So an if statement, you know, works like this, and, and this is how I need to structure the language and whatnot. Right, right. But sometimes, you know, I'm fighting, like, some flaky, like, integration test for, like, two hours, and I'm just, like, you know, tweaking one line of code, then rerunning it, tweaking another thing and rerunning it. At that time, I am, like, thinking, like, you know, what is going on? But Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's just interesting, you know? Um, or, or if you think about, like, a carpenter, a master carpenter. Are they thinking about the joints in the building that they're crafting? Or are they just doing? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good question. And I think I think like there's there's some layers to that too, where it's like if you're trying to solve a challenging programming problem, there's thinking in a manner of spontaneity returning to that buoyant awareness. And mostly residing in awareness, allowing your mind to, you know, go go on these cognitive forays when it needs to. And there's like being stuck and being congealed and like thinking, 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 you know, thinking yourself down into a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, And I feel like those are two different things too. That's very true. Because the ordinary mind thinks. Right. Yeah. No, definitely. And, you know, if you talk to anyone who, who is a programmer, like they'll tell you, especially if they've been doing it for a while, like... A lot of the times, you will sit and try to bash your head against the problem for like six hours. You'll, you know, learn it inside and out, and you'll feel like you haven't made much progress. Then, like, later, you'll just be, like, going for a walk, and bang, in a flash, the solution appears to you. Or you're taking a shower or something, you know? Yeah. That's happened to me, and I'm just, like, lying in bed. It's, like, 12 p.m. or 12 a.m. I wish I could fall asleep. Boom, answer to my architectural problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's interesting about that is it echoes a lot of stories of like Zen masters, you know, reaching like Satori or like you know, various forms of awakening where it's like I forget which uh which Zen master this was. I think it was I can't remember the name of his name. Um but basically he was like really ardently pursuing enlightenment. Um you know, and he was just meditating, 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 meditating way more than his peers. Um, he got to the point where he was meditating chest deep in a frozen river. And he got, you know, horrible uh, pneumonia. And on the brink of death, he was like super sick. And he like, you know, was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. He coughs up a, a blood clot. And in that moment, he's enlightened, you know? <laughs> so it's like, as soon as he gives up, or like the Buddha himself, like his, his story is like, you know, he's practicing this really severe path um, of meditation and austerity and like he reaches enlightenment when he stops and eats a bowl of rice you know yeah so it's interesting how that mirrors the experience of gaining insight um, in a moment of idleness it also makes me feel like I need more like unstructured time yeah yeah because I think I pack my time like really tight you definitely do pack your time really tight my unstructured time is very important to me. Um, yeah. It's very important to me to just have time to just, like, you know, do what I want to do. I mean, the flip side of that is, like, you know, I'm able to do less things, right? Because I don't fully pack my time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with work, it's, like, 40-plus hours a week are, are devoted to that, it, you know, 40 to... 50 on an average week I would say yeah sometimes more very occasionally less but not really um and then beyond that you you have all the other things right you gotta work out um I gotta 
make dinner. I try to feed myself, try to hang out with you and talk to yeah, hang out with parents, Margaret. hang out with yeah, hang out with my partner, hang out with Margaret's his partner. Yeah, Margaret's my partner. Hang out with my uh, you know, talk to my family, like not just you, but you know, read through our little brother and me yeah. and Baba. I make time for friends, uh, work on the app, read books. Yeah. And, you know, because of that, it can be very difficult to do things like read books consistently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something that I really struggle with. Um, yeah, I, think, at I times. think we all do at times. That's for sure. <laughs> so the good thing is we're working on a solution to that problem. Um, <laughs> it works 100% of the time. Literally, it can take someone who can't even read, and it will make you, like, the next Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> this is not an exaggeration. Like, I'm dead serious. Like, you pay us, and <laughs> we will do this for you. <laughs> okay? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. But in all seriousness, like, you know, what, what we can do for you is, if you are in this situation. If you find yourself wanting to read more for various reasons, maybe it's for personal enrichment, you know? Maybe you're someone who wants to read, you know, nihilistic literature and, you know, like freaking go use that to meet some some girl with blue hair, you know? Maybe you're <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're a law student, you know? Maybe you're trying to like um, rob seniors of their pension funds you need to read cases for that you know maybe <laughs> it could be anything it could be more likely if you're like us you're you're trying to read for a combination of self-improvement and personal enrichment which are um semi-related but not the same i would say like your self-improvement is reading things that make you more effective at your chosen path the, the way you pursue you know as musashi would describe it enrichment is stuff that you're not normally going to collide with that helps you live a richer, deeper life as a human. Uh, and it's the stuff that can be even harder to fit in, you know, as compared with self-improvement stuff. But we, we use um, a host of techniques to help you read more with our app. So we use behavioral nudges. We use framing. We use uh, variable reinforcement schedules. We use loss aversion. Uh, these are all techniques that tech companies use on you routinely uh, against your awareness against your intent to compromise your attention to make you waste time we as software people i'm a software designer are you a software engineer we live in silicon valley we're taking these techniques and we're using them to help you fight back against this low attention span uh era where lizard people are just trying to rob you of your attention and your humanity um (laughs) and yeah i mean what else no, I think that I think that's really it. I was trying to find this this quote, sadly, that was really relevant to what you were just talking about, and I'm struggling to find it. But you know, basically, Munanori talks about how, um, you know, basically, like to highlight that what you're saying was was a joke, right? That that we're gonna magically like turn you into Charles. <laughs> I I think what what our focus it's really is is that it. like they. Like, it's actually uh, hard work. And yeah, it is. We're, yeah. Not, we're not selling you, like, snake oil miracle cure here. It's, that's not what it is. You're still going to have to do all of the work. Yeah. We're just going to try to, you know, uh, use, you know, these tools that Aaron just talked about to encourage you, nudge you towards achieving your own goals instead yeah. of nudging you towards... Um, you know, scrolling endlessly on a never-ending feed in dark mode that gives you, like, constant little dopamine hits, and there might be some good memes on there. You know, you might enjoy some of that. So you don't have to do none of that, but, you know, we're, we're just trying to give you, um, give you, give you a, a different perspective on that stuff. Yeah, just, like, stack the odds in your favor more. So if you want to... Read more, and like when we say read more, like really, that's like that's gonna mean something different to different people, you know, in terms of quantity, in terms of quality, in terms of what they're reading. But generally, what we envision is somewhere in your house there is a large, long form book 
that's been sitting there that you've been wanting to read. Maybe it's Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Maybe it's War and Peace. Maybe it's the Decentralized Systems textbook that, that you're trying to read right now. Uh, yeah, Designing Data Intensive uh, Applications. Applications. That's, 100%. that's a fat one. <laughs> yeah. And we all have that book. Maybe it's also, you know, fiction, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a book called Shantaram that Margaret recently read that's like this really fat book about this guy who was like an Australian outlaw. Is that fiction or is that non-fiction? So it's fiction, but it's loosely based on the author's actual life. So the dude was an actual Australian outlaw who like escaped to India and like lived in the slums and stuff. But he took liberties with his own story to turn it into a novel. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, because I thought that was like real. It's like somewhat real. Yeah. I think I believe like Musashi <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway yeah, yeah. Um, so you know it's like that 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 book that's been calling to you that every time you look at it you're like you know fuck like this is I wish I had read this I wish I was reading this I wish I felt like I had the time to complete this um, you know it it's not gonna be easy to complete it but part of what makes it hard is you're in this digital environment where people are constantly robbing your attention and like we want to turn those tools against that to like help you you know like it's not going to get done like no one can make you um climb the mountain and gain insight right like you have to do it but we can um we can just stack the odds in your favor a little more and use some of the same tools that are being used against you constantly you know right yeah right I wonder how some of these people from the past would fare today, right? Like, these people who were so focused and single-minded and, like, masters of their craft. Um, you know, how would they respond to, like, this uh, attention economy, right? Where they're constantly being, you know, poked at and pulled at. Would, you know, Takuan Soho be occasionally tempted to scroll through Instagram for an hour instead of, you know, going and sitting? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think it's a blessing if you like come upon you know meditative practice. You aren't scared off by its reputation. You try it out. You see that it helps you, and you cultivate a, a steady practice. Like it's so like it's so many times and places you could drop off of that. Um, I think it's extremely unlikely that any of these people would come upon the defining practices of their lives in the modern era. You know. I think they would probably still be really good at something because clearly they have, you know, like that natural spark and talent, you know, and they're very driven, but they might be like esports gamers making millions <laughs> of dollars, you know? <laughs> or like drone racers, or, you know, like have a cryptocurrency. Well, maybe esports is a path to enlightenment because by the time you're like 25, you know, your career is over. Like, you, your reflexes have degraded, and now you're, like, an old man in the esports arena, and everyone, like, laughs at you because you can't click fast enough to win at StarCraft anymore. Yeah. And then maybe you realize, you know, I got a meditator. I'm just going to, you know, lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think esports is absolutely a, a potential path to enlightenment. <laughs> absolutely. I think, I think what what would make what, everything arguably is a path to enlightenment I think certain things have a <clears throat> burden of cause and effect that can make it harder you know what I mean like if you're doing something truly murderous um, I think that can make it hard if that's your job well here's an interesting counterpoint to that Musashi Musashi Budinari, Budinari, <laughs> right? they're both literally fucking murderers yeah and there's stories from like ancient Buddhism too of people who were like literally like serial murderers who convert over and they get it you know yeah but they also live in a different time where it was just normal to be a murderer yeah yeah that's true too that's true too yeah we live in a time where it's not normal or accepted to just kill people yeah but I, I think like any pursuit you do including esports or anything else where you're forced to contend with suffering is a potential you know on ramp to the kind of insight that'll help you overcome that suffering you know because you see what works and what doesn't work that's the thing right I mean I think that's what if you have a meditation practice and, and you're in any walk of life 
I think startups are a great example because your victories are really short-lived, you know? Yeah. And so are your failures. And they're constant. <laughs> like, it's like something goes really great and you feel amazing. And then, like, the next day, everything goes to shit. Like, you know, there's a huge issue with the customer. And then the next day, it's like you raise a round of capital and you're like, I'm feeling amazing. And then the next day, there's like a terrible, like, press article about you. And, like, <laughs> and so you see that, like, no external attainment brings you lasting satisfaction and the suffering has to be dealt with on its own terms. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, in the moment, through a practice that cultivates equanimity or helps you see your true nature to, you know, not feel like you're just like a leaf on a branch that's being buffeted by the wind and you're separate from the tree, you know? Right. You know? Right. Get the app. Get the app. And I think that's a wrap for Reading Rebellion number three. Check out the podcast, also called Reading Rebellion. Um, Drop us a line. We'll put our contact emails in the description this time for real. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll even go back and add it to the last one where we said that. Yeah. And our our Twitter, we're going to start tweeting soon. Probably next week. And... um... We're, we have a website for the app, like, almost done. We'll, we'll throw that up soon, and you guys can, you know, uh, subscribe if you want updates. When we say this app will make you Charles Dickens, like, we don't mean, like, just in terms of your ability to read and write. We mean in terms of your actual fame and success. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> we mean, like, you will literally, like, you're going to be on college curriculums. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I mean is that you're just going to, like, wither and die and turn into, like, actually Charles Dickens' bones. <laughs> 100%. I mean, that's something we can can promise. <laughs> yeah, but you will read more. I mean, if you join the app, um, you will read more. Um, that's it. That's it. And um, we will too. And we'll keep you keep you posted. What are we going to talk about next time? We'll leave it as a mystery for the readers this time. Complete mystery. Listeners. They'll find out next week on The Price is Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no Price is Right. Don't, don't sue me, whoever owns the rights to that. <laughs> We're we're uh, reading rebellion, but if you if you are trying to sue us, that probably means you have a lot of reading to do because you're a lawyer. So <laughs> consider you know liking and subscribing. <laughs> yeah, if you're gonna sue us, definitely like and subscribe. I mean, I think that's a reasonable ask. Um, <laughs> like and subscribe. Um, we'll give you a lot of ammunition. Subscribe on there. Yeah. Hit the bell button on YouTube so you get the notifications when we post videos. Uh, all that. I'm gonna try to make the videos like funnier. I guess I don't know. I just feel like the videos aren't as funny. Like we we have more laughs on the podcast. Yeah, I mean that's because it's you and I talking, and we just laugh about random shit constantly, no matter what. Yeah, with the videos, I'm like a grim faced lecturer, <laughs> <laughs> like dictating how you should live your life. No, I'm really not. I'm just sharing some facts and and research around like what we talk about. Um, I keep it interesting, I keep it intriguing, but, um, and frankly, it's fucking hilarious. I, I like it. <laughs> so go there and expect that. <laughs> I agree. It is hilarious. <laughs> and informative. Um, and it's like drinking from a fire hose of knowledge and um, enlightenment. And with that, goodbye.